0: Hello everyone welcome to Chill Pill. My name is Emma Ives and I am the creator slash host of this fabulous podcast. I created this podcast since I love all things medicine and my roommates are getting kind of sick and tired of listening to me talk about it. Today we'll be discussing a short history of my favorite topic of all time, antibiotics. I am not a medical professional so I will never give advice on the medical stuff. Please seek out your physician for advice. I'll link all my sources in the description, as well as mention them throughout this podcast. I would also like to apologize when I recorded this episode, I was a little sick and I was trying to edit out the card noises behind me, so I sound a little more raspier than usual. I have been fascinated by antibiotics since the young age of five when I found out I was allergic to penicillin. It was quite a shocker to my parents when I woke up one morning and I was covered in hives and I had a fever. I thought it was great because I didn't have to go to school for five days. Anyway, starting in high school, I took every opportunity to write about diseases and antibiotics in some way. History class, how diseases spread via travel between nations. English, why vaccines should be mandated for all children. Fun fact, writing about methylacillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus is what got me into Ohio State. So I'm going to first tell you the story of the cutest little blue-green mold that I believe to be one of the most significant advancements of the 21st century. You've probably taken him or one of his less famous cousins if you've ever had an infection. This little guy is the antibiotic known as penicillin. And this is how, without him, most of you would probably have died from a simple scrat or cut. Did you know that penicillin would not have come into being if one scientist had just hired a cleaning lady? In the words of Alexander Fleming himself, When I woke up just after dawn on September 28th, 1928, I certainly didn't plan to revolutionize all medicine by discovering the world's first antibiotic. Like that, but like more British. Before the discovery of penicillin, if a person got a cut or a scrape, more often than not, it got infected by Staphylococcus aureus, or staph for short. And that person would have died. Hospitals were breeding grounds for this little bacterium. Alexander Fleming was working in his laboratory in a hospital when he noticed a petri dish that was growing staph was left open near a window, and it started to grow this weird green-blue mold. Any normal scientist scratched that. Any normal human being would have found it gross and just would have thrown it out. But not Fleming. Fleming was a curious man. Fleming put it under a microscope and found that the mole released a substance that killed the surrounding bacteria. This mold juice, a term coined by Fleming, not me, was potent to the bacteria, but non-toxic to humans. Penicillin works by finding the chink in the bacteria's armor, which is more accurately referred to as their cell wall. This interferes with the cell's ability to form crosslinks to keep the wall intact. The cell wall is necessary to keep the bacteria safe from anything that wants to destroy it, like another bacteria, or an antibiotic, just, you know, for example. As a result of this interference, the cell wall degrades, and the bacteria can't replenish it fast enough. A bacterial cell is made to grow and reproduce as quickly as possible. So the weakened cell cannot compensate for the cell's need to grow, and the cell explodes, taking the harmful effects with it. Remember how I assumed that all of you had probably taken penicillin at some point in your lives? Well, that was really rude of me, so I'm going to apologize to the 10% of you who are allergic to it. A penicillin allergy develops when the antibiotic is introduced into the body the first time. And the body recognizes it as an invader and uses some very complicated immunological concepts that i'm not going to go into because i can't seem to translate them into normal people terms so it uses this complicated immunological concept to remember that this molecule the penicillin is an invader the next time it's introduced the body freaks out and works to stop the invader even though it's just penicillin this makes it one of the most common causes of a severe drug reaction so to the 10% of you who have this allergy, I'm sorry, this experience was probably not so pleasant for you. Sorry, got a little sidetracked there. Back to Fleming. Due to his poor public speaking skills, his findings did not gain steam until the late 30s, early 40s. However, he continued to show interest in it as a potential antibiotic and won a Nobel Prize in 1945, along with Edward Floritz and Ernst Chain. I would also like to take the time to acknowledge another scientist who is crucial in determining the chemical structure of penicillin. Her name is Dorothy Hodgkin. So, I'm going to set the scene. It's V.E. Day in Oxford, in 1945. People are celebrating, and Dorothy is making her way through the crowds, careful not to have anyone bump the cork and wire model of a structure that would protect so many people who she's standing in the middle of for years to come. Dorothy Hodgkin used X-ray crystallography, to determine how atoms and penicillin oriented themselves in space. And she did it without a computer. Guys, she's a wicked genius. You all need to go look her up. She's super cool. She was awarded the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 1964 for her work on x-ray analysis of complicated structures, including penicillin and vitamin B12. However, this was 19 years after she had discovered the chemical structure of penicillin. Here's a little fun fact for all my listeners back in Illinois. You know who you are. Hello. It's me, Emma. I'm doing a podcast. It's fine. Mass-producing penicillin was very daunting, and it was wartime. The U.S. wanted this miracle drug to help their soldiers fight overseas, and the Brits could not continue research on it as it was a drain on their resources. Again, it was wartime. The scientists recommended the Northern Regional Laboratory in Peoria, Illinois, due to their research in fermentation methods to increase the growth of fungal cultures. That's a fancy way of saying they were experimenting to grow mold. Ironically, the best strain of penicillium for wide-scale manufacturing came from a moldy cantaloupe in a grocery store in Peoria. This was after a worldwide search that was deemed to be not fruitful. See, I made a fruit pun because it was a moldy cantaloupe. Okay, we're moving on. By the time the Allies stormed the beaches at Normandy, there was enough penicillin to go around. Yay, and penicillin lived happily ever after, right? Curing bacterial infections and being all around versatile. Wrong. That's not what happened. This is the part of the story that gets kind of scary. Penicillin has met a foe it cannot defeat. In 1947, four years after the drug went into mass production, Staphylococcus aureus mutated into MRSA. Disclaimer, this is disputed. Some forces say it was 1960. However, a paper by Katriana Harkins, published in 2017, makes a good argument for the 1940 state. It's in the description. You should go read it. So the bacteria responsible for its discovery has become its undoing. MRSA is now resistant to an entire class of penicillin-like drugs. Staff's mutated cousin runs unchecked in hospital settings around the U.S. And Fleming warned us. In his Nobel lecture in 1945, he said, the time may come when penicillin can be bought by anyone in the shops. Then there is the danger that the ignorant man may easily underdose himself and by exposing his microbes to non-lethal quantities of the drug, make them resist it. And we have sadly reached the time that Fleming has foretold. I'm going to take the time to apologize right now. There are some birds outside my window and you might be able to hear them. I've tried my best to edit them out but they are very loud and obnoxious, so I am going to apologize. So what is antibiotic resistance? And why is it so scary in the field of medicine? According to Kevin Wu from TED-Ed, the reason for antibiotic resistance lies in Darwin's theory of natural selection. Like most organisms, bacteria grow and evolve. And during this evolutionary process, random mutations are bound to occur. These mutations can be caused by environment, or the DNA polymerase reading the strand of DNA incorrectly and not proofreading those bases. Many of these mutations are silent, meaning there's no change to the bacteria. Some are harmful, it kills the bacteria, and some are useless, it doesn't give the bacteria any edge over any other bacteria. So these traits just don't get passed on. However, if these mutations are beneficial to the bacteria in some way, let's say, resistance to a certain antibiotic, or multiple antibiotics for that matter, that trait gets passed on to future generations because it's giving that edge. As the non-resistant bacteria die off, which is really common in antibiotic-rich environments, hospitals, I'm looking at you, all that's left is this resistant bacteria, and that's what's growing and populating the environment. And they pass on their genes in many ways other than typical bacterial reproduction. They can release it into the environment when they die off in a process called transformation. When the cell dies and explodes, it releases all of their genetic material into the environment, and it's kind of floating around in there. And then other bacteria that are also in that environment can go and pick and choose the genetic pieces that they want. They can also exchange genetic material through pili during conjugation. This is when the two pili on the bacterial surface, they join, and they transmit little messages, like them shaking hands. I would compare this to when Aaron Burr and Hamilton is singing about a deal made in a room where it happened. They just kind of like shook hands, but no one really knows what happened in the room where it happened. That's kind of how I feel about conjugation. Someone please tell me they get this reference. According to the CDC's 2019 AR Threats Report, there are 2.8 million antibiotic-resistant infections a year, resulting in 35,000 deaths. That's a lot of antibiotic resistance infections. Like a lot. The report puts the 18 antibiotic-resistant bacteria and fungi into three categories, urgent threats, serious threats, and concerning threats, with a watch list of up-and-coming antibiotic-resistant threats. It is linked in the description if you want to read it. I think it's really fascinating. I did read the 2013 one when I was a kid because I was weird. It's fine. The star players of the urgent threats list are Carpepanum resistant actinobacter, C. gurus, C. diff, CRE, and drug-resistant gonorrhea. Four of the five are major concerns for those in healthcare facilities as they are often spread very easily. Other notable mentions include MRSA, drug-resistant non-typhoidal salmonella, and drug-resistant tuberculosis. These are also very, very threatening to healthcare facilities. So you're probably thinking, um, gee, we're going to run out of antibiotics. I would hold off on that thought for now. That's kind of a very hasty jump to some conclusions. According to my research, there's hope. The World Health Organization has made it a priority to combat antibiotic resistance. New antibiotics and biologics are being researched and put through thorough clinical trials and preclinical trials. However, this process has slowed in recent years. The WHO says that this is due to the lack of private investment in these projects. According to two papers, most research and development into these drugs is left to small or medium-sized enterprises. Also, the drugs in preclinical and clinical trials are going to take years of testing before they reach patients. That's how the FDA works, after all. Everything has to be thoroughly researched and proven to work. Or at least proven beyond a reasonable doubt. But there's some exciting news. A paper published in Frontiers in Pharmacology in 2019 discussed using bacteriophages and CRISPR-Cas9 and nanotechnology to combat multidrug-resistant bacteria. CRISPR-Cas9 systems are adaptive immune systems derived from archaea and bacteria that can be programmed to do very specific things like remove microorganisms, for instance. They specifically target a genome sequence that would lead to bacterial cell death. What can you, everyday listener, do to help slow the progression of antibiotic resistance? According to Dr. Goff, an infectious disease clinical pharmacist at OSU, I don't actually know what that is, but her job sounds really, really, really cool. Anyway, we can all be antibiotic stewards. Her inspiring TED Talk calls physicians to stop prescribing the just-in-case antibiotics. Those are antibiotics where you get a surgery at a hospital and they give you a painkiller and then they also give you an antibiotic and they're like, this is just in case you develop an infection. It also asks the consumers of antibiotics to bring up their concerns of the overuse to their primary care provider. So if you go to the doctor because you have the flu, don't ask for an antibiotic. That is one of her, actually, this is one of her suggestions to stop the spread of antibiotic-resistant diseases, to stop taking antibiotics for the common cold and the flu. This is something that annoys me, so I'm gonna go on a little rant here for a second. Everyone repeat after me, the flu is a virus. Viruses cannot be combated with antibiotics. Don't take an antibiotic for the flu. Don't ask your doctor for an antibiotic for the flu. Okay, sorry, that was my mini rant. Antibiotic stewardship calls each of us to educate ourselves and others about the overuse of antibiotics. This includes primary care physicians, your friends, your family, go out and shout it from the rooftops about antibiotic-resistant diseases because it's important. The World Health Organization also calls us and many other industries to be mindful about antibiotics. They called the agricultural industry to only feed antibiotics to their animals if they have an infection and not as a growth promoter. They asked the pharmaceutical industry to start looking into antibiotic and new ways to combat these resistant diseases. They ask everyday people to take antibiotics only when prescribed and to take the full course. I implore each of you to open a dialogue with your doctor about antibiotics and the spread of superbugs. I also ask you to open a dialogue with each other. Only through this communication can we bring this issue to light and possibly spur some new interest in this field. Fleming made a really important discovery, and each of us can play a part in preserving the antibiotics we have left and then promoting the innovative solution to our current predicament. I am not a medical professional, so please consult your primary care physician if you were intrigued by anything you heard today. I do all my own research, and my sources are linked in the description. So please, give all those scientists your love. They would really appreciate it. They worked really hard. The intro music was done by Cooper Wood and the artwork is done by me. My name is Emma Ives and thanks for listening to Chill Pill.